This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. I'm joined today by Chris Ryan, and we are brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour celebrate life with the birches call 224-9111 well another big week in the world and i have to first start with a remembrance and a tribute to the great aretha franklin who passed away uh this week she was called the queen of soul but her vocal skills and her impact on music, culture, America, and the world go far beyond that. She was a master of many different vocal styles, soul, gospel, church-inspired music, blues. She could sing pop. Uh, she could uh, sing uh, hippie rock and roll. She had an enormous career. Her famous song, Respect, which was an Otis Redding song that, as he said, she stole my song, but it's okay because she's a friend, um, helped propel the women's movement uh, way back when. Um, just an enormous, enormous presence uh, on the musical scene. She played at the White House a few years ago for President Obama and Michelle and uh, brought the president to tears. Just an enormous force uh, for good and beauty in the world, and uh, she's she's gone. Um, but also in the news this week uh, was another African-American woman, Omarosa. And uh, Omarosa, who was a high-end aide to uh, President Donald Trump, got her start on The Apprentice Show and became the highest-ranking African-American uh, in the White House, um, was fired not too long ago by John Kelly. Uh, she wrote a book and has been on a book tour. And in the book and in her various public comments, she's pulled no punches about what she saw in the White House. And in fact, the name of the book was Unhinged. Um, that is an accolade that uh, we hear it off the record, <clears throat> the royal we, have often attached to uh, the great white whale uh, in the White House. Uh, but this comes from an insider, and she points to um, uh, unhinged behavior, episodes of misogyny, episodes of racism, 
and uh, the book has been creating quite a stir, and so has her feud with the great orange carrot-topped cantaloupe who occupies the White House, who in a now-famous tweet uh, brought out his favorite kinds of insults, calling Omarosa a dog and crazed and wild and doing the usual Trumpian spin on anybody who crosses his path. And the whole episode got me thinking. I mean, the world of media, and here I am on the radio, talks about the Trump tweets because it causes our heads to explode. The idea that the president of the United States would demean and debase the office repeatedly and insult people and engage on a petty, childish, psychopathological level as the carrot top cantaloupe does is somehow deeply disturbing to those of us who love our country and love democracy and have hope for a better future because we can't imagine how anybody like uh, this great white whale can occupy the White House and debase it so. But it also got me thinking about what the great white whale craves. I think what he craves is attention of any kind. And he keeps throwing out these uh, tennis balls as if we were... Um, happy-go-lucky golden doodles like my dog Scuppers who'd chase anything anywhere, go chase the ball and uh, then go do his business and bring the ball back to do it again and you throw it out again and of course he goes and does it again. It's an automatic response and he can't help himself. This is, you know, he's he's a psychopathological liar. That's a terrible thing to say about Scuppers. Well, I know. I'm not talking about Scuppers anymore. Now I'm talking about the Carrot Top Cantaloupe. Scuppers isn't here to defend himself. Scuppers can't defend himself. But but the Carrot Top Cantaloupe has made his whole career lying and insulting people and trying to intimidate people that way. Of course, Omarosa is going to beat him at his game. But just imagine, folks, imagine for a moment that we were capable. And by we, I mean all of us and those of us in... Uh, who have some access to cameras and microphones, that we were able simply to ignore the President of the United States. Just imagine that we didn't talk about his tweets, and we didn't call him anything, and we didn't even talk about him because he was so irrelevant and so unhinged and so out of touch that he didn't merit any news time. He would just maybe dry up like a leaf and blow away. He would wither. He would sit at home alone at night with buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken, and we wouldn't have to talk about it or him or the grave danger that he poses. Why don't we just stop talking about him? Because the President of the United States. Um, and when the President of the United States makes statements or offers uh, some sort of an insight into his uh, mindset and gives a rationale at times for his actions that warrants um, attention. I mean, if he were candidate Trump, that's different. Um, And I think there should be a lot of, uh, you know, uh, retrospectual um, views of how he was covered during the course of the campaign, but the campaign's over. He's president of the United States. And um, therefore, he warrants the type of uh, attention that he deserves. But this brings up a, a different topic. And, you know, what we want from our candidates and who we want our candidates to be moving forward. This weekend, Michael Avenatti, 
the lawyer for Stormy Daniels is going to be in New Hampshire in campaigning. Fact, in fact, he's, he's coming. House. Yeah, well, he's coming to the Hillsborough <laughs> County yes. Democrats, yeah. and there's been a, a small group of people who've been invited to meet him for dinner. And um, I'm planning to go. Of course, I want I want to meet the guy, and uh, and uh, you know, I'm just imagine. I've been I've been sort of musing about an Avenetti Daniels Democratic ticket for president. Imagine Stormy Daniels running for vice president. There's a lot of jokes, but I will not go there. I mean, in, um, in the age of Donald Trump, how outlandish is that? That is that is the. I mean, if you want to complain about the the Trump presidency being uh, problematic, if we go down that path, um, <laughs> well, I mean, just Avenetti, pack it up and drive home, Ab- folks. Avenetti, I'm, a- I'm packing. If, if if Mike if Michael Avenetti becomes president of the United States with Stormy Daniels as vice president. The uh, Jeep is getting packed up, and I'm going to Canada because that it's time. It is time. It is time to call it a day for imagine, America. I just imagine Michael Avenetti, if nothing else, he's a, he's an attorney, but he's also clearly a brilliant media manipulator. And Stormy Daniels, um, and who some, else is a brilliant media manipulator who had no qualifications at all, really, to be president? Well, that's right. But and he didn't, so how about we? He didn't. Why don't we? Why don't we? Instead of. Um, Going to dinner with Michael Avenetti and um, you know trying to pull and and to put uh, you know helium in his balloon. Why don't we focus on individuals like John Kasich or if, Jeff Merkley or individuals who you would actually are capable of being president? It's one thing to run for office and be successful, and and Michael Avenetti may be able to. I have no doubt that he is going to be able to be successful and he's going to be able to say a lot of things. He's going to get a lot of airtime. He's going to be able to debate, but. You know, if we're going to move in a direction where we just have a bunch of clowns who are going to run for office and not individuals who are qualified and capable and understanding of the issues that are um, facing the American people, the people of New Hampshire, we're in trouble. Well, I know, I mean, I know you're a serious guy and and my going to, to dinner to meet Michael Avenetti is is uh, a serious bit of business but more importantly to me it's a free meal and i am never one to turn down a free meal i mean i imagine dinner's going to be someplace uh, pretty decent um maybe in manchester and they got a you know i was down there this oh, there's morning. so many jokes that i'm just not going to say there, because i'm i have so much class i'm just i can't some, i can't bring myself down there's there. some really good restaurants in manchester yeah. and it's a free meal i know exactly where you're going but i'm also interested <laughs> yeah. in michael avenetti and what possesses Michael Avenetti, what would possess a guy like that to even investigate running for president of the United States? I mean, what remote qualifications can he say he has? He can say, I've represented and stood up for and been the voice of high-profile clients like Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels has about the same qualifications to the vice president as Avenetti has for president. (laughs) They've both been in the press a lot. They've both been uh, public figures. Um, They've both had uh, careers in media. And and I suppose with Avenetti, although he's an attorney, you could say he's turned it into a media career because that seems to be mostly what he does. And we can see this is the way. I mean, Donald Trump. It has laid the template for um, for all this. Donald Trump uh, is is an individual who has, in my view, and I argue, I believe it or not, I argued with Paul Steinhauser about this on the show that Trump is more qualified than, than Michael Adenetti, uh to um, to be president. 
And um, that was- is not a debate I care to entertain. <laughs> I think I think that is a totally totally irrelevant debate. Yeah. It's about as relevant as arguing over whether or not Trump actually used uh, the uh, uh, disgusting uh, word for African Americans or not. Because fa- folks, the case is closed. Donald Trump is an unhinged misogynist racist. He is a white supremacist. Th- white supremacist authoritarian racist that evidence is in that case is closed and to even spend media time discussing it is really kind of beside the point there's no need to discuss it we know he's a racist again i don't i don't know if donald trump is a a racist or not i would say that donald trump has continuously um engaged in behavior in which he Elevates himself above all other individuals, but also is extremely um, uh, sensitive and um, has an inferiority complex. Um, but he he views himself as a he views himself as being the superior being. He is a white male, and um, you can go from where you want in regards you know, to that. I I think you finally hit on it. I think you really have. Chris Ryan, ladies and gentlemen, I want to compliment Chris Ryan because he has finally figured out Donald Trump. He's sensitive. He's very sensitive. He he's a caring, sensitive, new age kind of guy, and all I the rest of this. Kind of all the rest of this is yeah. just a front. He's actually a sensitive, caring individual. When it comes to marchers in Charlottesville, uh, who he loves everybody, be- man. Beating both up sides. protesters. Everybody. He loves everybody. He loves both sides, and he's so sensitive that when somebody says something mean and nasty about him he has to answer in kind because he's sensitive you heard it here folks chris ryan has finally put the finger got feelings, on man. donald trump he, feelings nothing but feelings and that's the word for donald trump today don't hurt his feelings or he'll try to hurt you, he's back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet and archived at nhtalkradio.com where you can binge listen to your heart's content. Brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. And don't go away, we'll be back after a short break to talk with Jason Rosenstock, our guy in Washington, D.C., to talk about what's going on with money, the economy, taxes, and crooked banks. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge-listening pleasure. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join the tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. Well, I'm really pleased to welcome back to Off the Record one of our favorite guests, our guy in Washington, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, Jason Rosenstock of Thorn Run Partners, an expert on financial matters and financial affairs with long experience uh, in Washington, D.C., both serving 
the people of the United States and um, and speaking to the representatives of the people of the United States. Jason, welcome back to Off the Record. Great to be back, Paul. So I find you in a different kind of Washington. Where where are you at the moment? I am in Washington State at the moment on a on a small work trip, and was pleasantly pleased to find that there's a Mount Washington on the other side of the country. Although I think it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit taller. It's either a little bit taller or a little bit smaller. I can't remember than the uh, the famous Mount Washington of New Hampshire. Well, that's it's very cool to be a bicoastal uh, Washington guy. So I can call you my bicoastal Washington guy, which is which is always fun. But meanwhile, there's there there's been you know some some interesting doings on the financial affairs front. First of all, uh, in no particular order, the the in terms of the general economic news, where there's been a debate over the impact or not of of the tax cuts that the Republicans put through uh, and that uh, President Trump signed and what they're doing for business. Um, And I'd be interested to hear from you what uh, folks in the financial sector are are thinking in general about the economy and how it affects the banking business. There have been some regulatory uh, changes uh, uh, that are ongoing in terms of the banks and what happened with uh, the Dodd-Frank's legislation. And then the third thing, and maybe we, we could start um, with the third thing, is uh, the trial of Paul Manafort had a lot to do with both the domestic banks as well as the international banking system. Um, And I'm curious about your reflections on uh, what the Manafort trial reveals about uh, domestic banks and how they operate uh, or uh, function or don't function, and whether or not uh, any of the evidence in the Manafort trial uh, might lead to further action in Congress. A lot. Uh, great questions, Paul. So, I mean, I think you know the Manafort trial uh, has really um, captivated uh, a much of the media uh, for a variety of reasons. Obviously, its connection to the president and the campaign. Um, you know, I think this is the first of what will be many um, trials um, on this issue, uh, and you know, this one was really about tax evasion and some money laundering and some wire fraud, as you, as you alluded to. I mean, I think it certainly uh, shone, uh, shined a light on certain practices um, that certain banks, and one bank in particular, I believe, was uh, engaged in. Um, but in terms of, you know, whether it will uh, drive for, for change, my guess is probably not, uh, largely because... Um, I think that the, the the rules are good. It was you know you had a bad actor who was evading them, but but got caught. So I think in some ways the system worked, and so I think it's unlikely uh, to drive uh, substantial changes. Although there might be some you know sort of more discreet or sort of granular uh, around the edges stuff that someone might want to advocate. I'm not really sure that the trial specifically has highlighted what that is at this point, but it could be justification for some sort of future action. So I'm curious about the following. Um, At the Manafort trial, uh, the CEO of the bank, which supplied a lot of his domestic loans at a time when clearly 
he and or Gates were um, putting out false information as well. But uh, Manafort had a relationship with the CEO of the bank in which the clear implication and some of the evidence showed that uh, it looked like Manafort was promising the CEO some plum government job, at least that's the clear implication from the evidence, in exchange for approval of a series of loans which kept Manafort in business and about which folks lower down in the bank were skeptical and felt pressured by the CEO to avoid the usual kind of due diligence uh, and inspection they might do to verify Manafort's information. Um, And as a result, there has been some talk about whether or not the CEO might be termed, at this point, an unindicted co-conspirator in some of Manafort's schemes to obtain money under false uh, pretenses. Um, What, if anything, in our banking regulatory scheme uh, deals with that kind of situation where uh, the CEO has some special interest, pushes uh, for um, approval of something which is uh, outside the bounds of the usual process, uh, avoids uh, the kind of due diligence that uh, a fiduciary or the chairman or CEO of a bank ought to be involved in. Is there anything other than the criminal process that allows uh, banking regulators to take a look at this and uh, was there were there any warning signs that anybody's pointed to where banking regulators should have been uh, more diligent in figuring out uh, earlier what Manafort was doing with these bank loans? And it's really an open um, it's an open question. I I I I, I ask it um, not just serving up a softball, but I really I I, I don't know, and I thought you might. You know, I don't know the specifics if there are in terms of what, you know, laws are on the books in terms of civil or uh, other opportunities, you know, to, to to bring charges. I would suspect that there are a couple of things. One, uh, outside of the bank regulators, you know, the bank, I believe, has a board, and, and an independent board, and they are, they would be, should be made aware of those um, um, allegations, you know, those, those issues as they, as they come up. Um, I think there are, uh, you know, allowances for, uh, for CEOs. There's obviously ramifications in terms of the, the, the business side of it, which is, I think, where most of that comes from, depending on, um, in terms of illegality. I don't know that there's, you know, if, if a person goes to a, a CEO and says, look, I'm, you know, I think the issue here, right, was that the, it was the quid pro quo, the trade-off for the um, for the uh, the job, which is really the issue. Not so much the like a, a person goes to a CEO who you know of a bank and basically says, like, I really need the loan. I'm going to personally vouch for it. You know, you're, you know, I'm good for it. And the CEO says, Hey, we're gonna we're gonna take a risk on this one. Let's let's do it. I think that's to some extent allowed under banking law. Obviously, if there are other uh, ancillary issues. 
uh, of illegality, of you know bribery, of, of other things at stake, which may which seems like they were at the case of the Manafort. That's a separate issue, I think, and so you kind of have to deconstruct the actual transaction uh, into into um, into the various components to sort of figure out where the problem lies. I mean, you know, this is there is. It was, as you were talking, I was, I was realizing you know there is a lot of work being done in Congress currently to update uh, what is what, what's called BSA AML, that's Bank Secrecy Act, anti money anti money laundering laws. Um, and I, my my guess is that this actually will probably play a role in that as Congress is working through um, some pretty significant changes to the regulatory structure. I believe to actually tighten them up, which is. Uh, it's a pretty strong bipartisan effort, which is somewhat unique in this current environment. Um, but I believe it would be a tightening, in many ways, a tightening of the BSA ML laws, but in some other ways, a relaxing too um, in certain areas. So, uh, um, of sort of, you know, for smaller banks and, and banks that aren't doing, uh, you know, international transactions and stuff that have to file reports. And, uh, you know, one of the things that law, I believe, which was written in the 70s, hasn't been updated, so that in terms of the amounts of money that trigger uh, thresholds, thresholds for reporting and things, I think there's a unified uh, belief that that needs to be raised because, you know, the, it's not really relevant to the transactions. Are, uh, right. And, and Manafort's scheme for obtaining money and, and, and hiding, hiding money, obtaining money uh, for fraudulent loans to keep himself afloat um, involved banks all over the world um, and particularly in Cyprus. Um, mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me. I, I when I was in Congress, I became good friends with the. Uh, Cypriot ambassador to Washington, um, a wonderful, a wonderful guy, and I had the occasion to visit Cyprus uh, about five or six years ago. Now it was a, a fascinating visit to an ancient part of the world. But one of the things I learned at the time was that the uh, Cypriot banking system was a favorite of Russians. Uh, and mm-hmm. that much of the money flowing into and through the banking system in Cyprus came from Russia. Uh, and the implication in the various discussions I had at the time, because I had recently been in Congress, I was interested in financial matters, was that there were a lot of blind eyes um, being um, uh, blindfolded because uh, people weren't asking questions about where the money was coming from, who was putting it in, what its derivation was, and that the banking laws in Cyprus were not only lax, but uh, inviting to uh, people who may have uh, gotten their money illegally, and it just didn't seem to matter, but the banks in Cyprus were clearly uh, being uh, thought of as a convenient way station for all kinds of Russian mob money. So it's no surprise that Manafort, who made his career um, uh, advising uh, Putin's puppets uh, in the Ukraine and other places, um, would try to use the banks in Cyprus as part of his scheme for money laundering and tax evasion. I guess I'm curious to know whether or not any of the current law um, would pick up uh, any of those international activities, or is it only when the money hits a U.S. bank 
that uh, the U.S. uh, banking laws are able to track and find out what's going on with domestic reporting requirements? Uh, That's an interesting question. I I believe the U.S. law, uh, well, it depends, I think, on the structure of the international bank, if they had U.S. um, subsidiaries or U.S. presence, my guess is then that the U.S. banking laws would apply up the chain to a certain point. Um, but, you know, my guess is that a lot of that is, uh, it's picked up but with the U.S. banks only, but, you know, he's got to bring the money back in in some capacity, I think. And so there's there's some manner of tracking, you know, that goes on there. Um, you know, interestingly enough, in regards to Cypriotic banks, I also believe that our current um, Commerce Secretary had a significant ownership in a very large uh, Cypriotic bank that, was favored by Russians. I'm not sure if it was the same bank that Manafort used, but and, and he may have disgorged that interest prior to becoming the Commerce Secretary. But Wilbur Ross was, you know, famous for using these these banks, which, as, as you alluded to, are well known as way stations for um, suspect. It's just another part of the Trump Russia connection that you gotta you gotta follow the money and if you follow the money you you end up at the banks and his commerce secretary his campaign chairman um it's all it's all of a piece well this is off the record with paul hodes on wkxlam and fm streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com we're talking with jason rosenstock of thorn run partners in washington dc and an economic and financial guru if there ever was one we're brought to you by the birches at concord new hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those suffering with alzheimer's dementia or other forms of memory impairment you can join a tour you can celebrate life with the birches call 224-9111 we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with further discussion about money and politics with jason rosenstock don't go away Welcome back to Off the Record here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet and archived at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. Brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life with the Birches, call 224-9111. And I'm happy to welcome back our financial guru, from Washington, bi-coastal today on the Pacific Coast in Washington State, Jason Rosenstock of Thorn Run Partners in Washington, D.C. Jason, welcome back. Glad to be back. Well, the political season is heating up uh, here in New Hampshire. Uh, various uh, political candidates are starting to tromp through the state, especially Democrats of all varieties. Uh, Jeff Merkley's been here recently. Um, We've got others. Michael Avenetti, Stormy Daniels' lawyer, is coming to speak to Hillsborough County Democrats this weekend. So uh, the presidential primary is on people's minds. And from a financial perspective, I'm curious, uh, 
whether or not you could share with us some of what you're hearing about uh, the buzz on the tax cuts in Washington, D.C. How are they playing with the cognizanti talking heads? But more importantly, how are they playing in the financial community? Um, what what are bankers seeing um, in our uh, economic future and forecast? And how are banks doing? And what are le- legislators thinking about rolling back uh, regulations? Sure. Uh, so, I mean, I think in terms of the tax cuts, they um, have, uh, it's a mixed bag in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I think that the banks, like like many uh, corporations, benefited from them. And I think most recently, uh, Treasury put out some regulations that allowed uh, financial services companies, I think beyond banks, to really take advantage of some of the, um, what they call pass-through um, uh, reductions in terms of uh, lowering a, a corporate tax rate. Um, but the interesting thing, right, is that it's a little unclear uh, how this has trickled down, no pun intended, to, uh, uh, the, you know, average working Americans. Uh, the Republicans uh, in this last special election that was in, in Ohio to fill the uh, remaining term of a, of a congressman who uh, sort of abruptly resigned Washington to go uh, be a lobbyist in Ohio, actually, not even in Washington. Um, you know, the Republicans barely held on to that seat, which was a reliably Republican district for 35-plus years. I think Trump won it by 25 points. Um, and they had been campaigning early on the tax cuts uh, and the benefits of the tax cuts, and they just didn't seem to have any resonance, and so they switched tactics towards the end and sort of uh, really campaigned against Nancy Pelosi, made, tried to tie the Democratic candidate to the uh, to leader Pelosi, um, and that may or may not have worked. And maybe you know, obviously there are strong structural benefits to the Republican Party, but you know, this thought that they're just going to be able to campaign on tax cuts and constantly tell people that they're, they're taxing them less seems to to not be resonating the way it traditionally has. And I think as it potentially exacerbates the uh, economic divide between the haves and the have-nots, so there's some real risk for a uh, populist backlash, uh, particularly, I think, in the presidential, where you sort of see, uh, uh, on particularly on the Democratic side, uh, you know, populist-type candidates like um, Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders, um, and potentially even um, Stormy Daniels' lawyer, who I think I saw the other day put up his sort of where he stands on various issues uh, on Twitter. Um, so he's clearly at least running for president. I don't know how serious you want to take his candidacy. Um, but I think that's sort of, you know, where it stands, uh, on terms of the, the tax cuts, uh, you're likely to see Republicans in Washington talking about, uh, tax cuts, uh, 2.0 this fall, I think mainly to try to show that if from a political messaging standpoint of, you know, keep Republicans uh, in control of Washington so we can do tax cuts because with the implication that the Democrats would do, uh, tax uh, increases, um, although I don't think there's actually going to be any substantive uh, movement towards any legislation between now and, and the end of the year in terms of uh, either um, uh, making the tax cuts permanent. Uh, this last round that the, the ramp was ran through Congress had some uh, uh, sunsets uh, or what we call sunsets or where the, the provisions expire after you know, four, five, six years. Um, so they can make them permanent uh, that 
it seems to be like an unlikely proposition, although they'll talk about it this fall. Um, and in terms of regulatory rollback, uh, to, to your point, so uh, this summer uh, the president signed into law a bill that was commonly referred to in Washington as, as S-2155, that's a Senate bill, and it was a uh, sort of a reg regulatory relief package. It, I think, uh, didn't really actually do that much to Dodd-Frank uh, substantively, although it was sort of billed as, in some, some ways, a Dodd-Frank rollback. Um, but it mostly benefited community banks, uh, and so now you're starting to see the larger banks uh, trying to press for the regulatory relief that they want. Some of it will come in form of legislation that, again, is probably a 2019 issue. Uh, some of it will come in forms of, uh, of regulations. They have a, a administration that has made it very clear they favor uh, reduced regulations, both in banking as well as energy and climate and, and other areas of the law. And so I think the regulators are working to try to uh, relax uh, as much of the Dodd-Frank regulations as they as they can within within the frameworks the law allows. Although, I think interestingly, uh, this morning I saw something that said so. There's this uh, thing that I know you're very familiar with, but your listeners may not know as well, called the Volcker Rule, which is a a rule to prevent uh, banks from taking uh, FDIC their FDIC uh, insured funds and basically putting them on a roulette wheel. Um, and the administration had come up with a proposal to re to to uh, reduce some of the the burdens of the reg of the Volcker rule, and you're actually seeing some banks say we don't we don't want you to relax it in this manner. It actually causes more harm for us than good. So uh, the jury's still out in terms of how it'll all uh, play out, but I think you're going to continue to see banks trying to uh, undo much of the Dodd-Frank reforms that you and your colleagues passed in uh, 2010. Well, uh, when we dealt with the fallout from the financial system collapse of 2007, 2008, uh, it became clear that some of the excesses in the banking community and the lack of oversight needed to be corrected um we we thought that uh the as i recall and please correct me if my memory is faultier than i think it is but uh, the volcker rule had been abandoned prior uh, to the collapse it it was one of the factors that we thought contributed to the banks taking depositors money and basically, as you said, putting it on a roulette wheel to invest in all the crazy uh, derivative instruments and and uh, investment vehicles that were part of the uh, foundation of the collapse of the financial system because those um, those investments proved to be, have a very very uh, faulty, essentially faulty or no. No collateral. That, that's a that's a short form for one of the problems that Dodd Frank was meant to correct. It was meant to separate depositors' money from investments that banks wanted to make. It was meant to require banks to hold more capital in reserve uh, to withstand shocks uh, to the system. Uh, it required uh, some more accountability and stress testing. Um, by the regulators of the banking system, all frankly seemingly 
pretty straightforward and and to me not very radical reforms one of the things that i was concerned about when i was a congressman and tried to do something about but to no avail was that i thought that uh, the regulations that had been passed in dodd frank did sweep up community banks in the regulatory scheme uh, when the community banks as i saw it were victims of what the big banks had done uh, and had not been uh, the 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 causes of the collapse of the financial system, and I thought that uh, we would be imposing uh, a an unnecessary burden on the community banks. And in New Hampshire, we have a com- strong community banking community and community banking system. And I thought those regulations uh, should have figured out uh, exclusions or exemptions. So uh, I'm assuming that there was bipartisan support for Senate Bill 2155, which relieved some of those financial burdens for community banks. Yeah, there was. There were, uh, I think, 16 Democratic senators who uh, voted for it, um, and then a a fair number of of House Democrats. I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head. Um, You know, the bill took a lot of uh, heat from the left uh, as a throwaway to the big banks, uh, which I don't think was really an accurate uh, description, um, and then there was a, a another provision that got pretty controversially um, elevated that I think caused a lot of grief. But you know that was a good uh, example of sort of how um, how partisan politics have become in many ways, and that it seems to be uh, for for many, unfortunately, that the perfect has to be the enemy of the good, and that if you you know. Uh, this for many liberal Democrats, I think in particular, there is this is the way we would do it. And if the Republicans offer something and then you work out a compromise, the compromise by itself seems to be tainted if it includes any of the Republican uh, proposals in it. And so um, it becomes challenging to get things in Congress. It only exacerbates the gridlock. So, I mean, it's kind of miraculous that this bill was able to get through. And I think it's really a, a testament to the skill and talents of some of the moderate uh, senators on both sides of the aisle who sort of worked it through the process um, and then sort of uh, had teed it up so that the House Republicans were sort of boxed in and unable to make really any um, substantive changes to the bill. When the, the bill passed the Senate, I think, as I said, it was 16, I think it was like 67 to uh, 43. Um, and I believe our New Hampshire senators... Uh, I believe both voted for it, right? Yes, both, both voted Senator Sheehan and right. Senator Hassan both voted for it. Uh, you know, in traditional good uh, New Hampshire uh, examples of moderates trying to to do the right thing. Um, but then uh, after it passed the Senate, uh, Chairman Jeb Henselings, who's the uh, House Financial Services Chairman, <laughs> I uh, remember him. Well. Yes, made some statements that he wanted to. Yeah, he appreciated the Senate's work, but you know the House had passed all these other bills, et cetera, et cetera, and they were going to try to, to change them. And then uh, he came up with a list of like 30 of 32 of the bills that he wanted it, that some version included. And lo and behold, at the end of the day, none of them got included, and he was forced to sort of swallow his pride a little bit and cut a side deal, supposedly, about uh, to get some of those other pieces of legislation considered in another form that how that ends up playing out has yet to be determined. 
Um, but you know, the bill the bill passed unchanged uh, by the House, and and then the president signed it. So I think uh, you know it was an interesting sort of example of of, of how uh, legislation can move in these divided times. Well, Jason Rosenstock. Thanks so much for joining us. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. Jason, have a great day, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Paul. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes, folks. Don't go away. We'll be back to wrap up after this. We're back. It's Off the Record on WKXLAM and FM. Streamed live over the Internet. Archived at nhtalkradio.com binge listen to your heart's content brought to you by the Birches at Concord New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's dementia or other forms of memory impairment join a tour celebrate life at the Birches call 224-9111 well Chris Ryan and I had an entertaining discussion about Michael Avenetti Omarosa a little tribute to Aretha Franklin and it featured Chris Ryan's psychoanalysis of Donald Trump as a sensitive individual, somebody whose feelings are easily hurt. And we had a great conversation with Jason Rosenstock about crooked banks and banking, a little bit about the Manafort trial and what it showed us about the banking system here in the U.S. of A. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, brought to you by the Birches at Concord. We appreciate our great sponsor, the Birches, and we thank all our listeners around the globe for tuning in to Off the Record with Paul Hodes. We'll see you next week.